Well, I do want to uh, encourage you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 7. We've been spending the fall months exploring uh, spiritual disciplines, a number of spiritual disciplines together, and today we are looking at the, the spiritual discipline or the discipline of generosity. Now, I almost feel like I need to say, especially to those of you who are watching at home, don't touch that dial. Right? I mean, talking about generosity isn't people's favorite thing. So maybe your, your, your thought is, well, here it comes. The pastor's going to talk now about how the church needs more money or needs our money. And lots of people have that perspective or apprehension when it comes to a sermon on generosity. It's a little bit like the time I was doing a wedding and the bride was like 45 minutes late and people were starting to get nervous. And someone said to me, well, you know, you're the pastor. Shouldn't you do something religious? So I took an offering, right? I mean, that, that's kind of what you do. That's the expectation. I didn't do that. Uh, that is the, the sort of expectation a lot of people have. The church is just going to ask for money. So I will tell you up front that this is probably the least financially based sermon on generosity that you've heard. Now, I could set all of your minds at ease and just tell you that part of what I want to tell you today is that God doesn't want your money. And he doesn't. But I also need to tell you that there is something God does want that is connected to your money, and that is he wants your heart. Now, there's a great need for practical teaching on sort of best practices when it comes to giving, things like stewardship and tithing and budgeting. But it's possible to have those things figured out and still completely miss the mark of what God wants from us. This was the mistake that the Pharisees made. And Jesus singled them out for their wrongheadedness when it came to their understanding of tithing. He said this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So he wasn't saying, don't bother tithing. He was saying, look, a cold and calculating approach to giving does not meet God's requirements. That's not ultimately what he wants. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul told us that no amount of giving could make up for a cold heart. Paul said, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned... But have not love, I gain nothing. So we're looking today at generosity. And what I really want to do is to get to the heart behind generosity. So last week we looked at the discipline of simplicity. And I went back and forth this week between titling this either generosity or extravagance. Because the passage we're going to look at is a demonstration of extravagant giving. In his book on the spiritual disciplines, Richard Foster said that we ought to learn to balance reasoned giving with risk giving. And the idea behind that is that there is a place in the Christian life for methodical generosity, the careful planning of our giving, what we might refer to as our tithes and our offerings. But there's also a place for spontaneous generosity as an act of worship, as an expression of gratitude. 
And so as we look at generosity today, I want to zero in on that second part of our generosity. More specifically, I want to focus on the heart behind generosity. And to do that, I want to look at this passage in Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 36 to 50 together. This is God's word, and this is what it says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, that is, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, that's a fascinating account. And I want to walk you through it by drawing your attention to two important truths. The first one is the observation that extravagant forgiveness results in extravagant worship. And this is what we see in the actions of the unnamed woman. This is actually the second time in this series now that we've looked at a story from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is at a dinner and a guest or someone shows up unexpectedly. We saw it when we looked at the story of the man that Jesus healed with dropsy, and now we see it here in Luke chapter 7. Verse 36 says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And then verse 37 says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That word, behold, captures something of the surprise that took place at this event. Jesus was having dinner at the house of a respected leader and suddenly, or and surprise, a woman of the city shows up with an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment. But the surprise is not her sudden appearance. The surprise is who this woman was and what she did. So let's think about who she was. 
Listen again to her description. We're told that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Well, that's an interesting way to describe someone. Now, in one sense, the description of her as a sinner would fit everyone. We are all sinners. But this description seems to imply that she was a notorious sinner or that she was well known for her sin. I mean, this is how Simon refers to her later when he says, if if he were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. And the, the likely implication is that this woman is, or at least was, a prostitute. And we also learn something about her by what she does. It's interesting that the woman doesn't say anything. I mean, she has no lines in this story. But her actions communicate and tell us so much about her. First thing we're told is that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, when we hear the word ointment, we shouldn't think of, you know, the kind of ointment you use on an open sore or rash, but of perfume. And this alabaster flask of perfume might have been the most expensive thing she owned. It might have been her most treasured possession. If she were, in fact, a prostitute, this might have been one of the tools of her trade. And pouring it out on Jesus' feet like this might have been a way of saying that she no longer needed it. Verse 38 then tells us that she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping to the point that her tears started falling on the feet of Jesus. Now, in homes at this time, you would have a low table and guests would be reclined. That is, they would sort of, you know, lean on one elbow into the table with their feet pointing away from the table. And this woman then stands behind Jesus and she she may have been moved to tears by something Jesus said during that dinner conversation. But I think the whole scene seems to suggest that she's had some prior encounter with Jesus and has been changed as a result of it. And she comes now to express her gratitude. And as she does so, she's caught up in the emotion of it all and her tears just begin to flow and they begin to drip on the feet of Jesus. Now you have to understand something about Middle Eastern culture to understand just how scandalous her next action was. After wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, she begins to wipe them with her hair. This means she would have had to let her hair down, which is something Middle Eastern women did not do in public, and in fact, even today, many women in the Middle East do not do so. The Jewish Talmud, collection of Jewish laws, says that a woman could be divorced for letting down her hair in the presence of a man who was not her husband. So grave was this offense that rabbis actually put a woman's loosening of her hair and uncovering her breasts in the same category. They were sort of equal offenses in their eyes. And yet this woman abandons all caution to express her gratitude to Jesus, to wash and anoint his feet. She takes her most valuable possession, and she spends it all to express her gratitude to Jesus. And I think there's something for us to learn from what she did. Now, you might remember the old hymn that begins with the the line, take my life and let it be 
consecrated Lord to thee? I mean, that, that line expresses a great truth, but as it is, it's just an abstract idea. It needs to be fleshed out, which is why later in the hymn we sing, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. See, extravagant forgiveness results in extravagant worship. It's a tangible thing that we do. And this is not the only place we see something like this. You might remember the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Here's how that story reads in Luke chapter 19. It says, he entered Jericho, that's Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the count of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what's so interesting about that story is that as far as we can tell, Jesus doesn't say anything to Zacchaeus about his money and what he ought to do with it. Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus, and after he has this encounter with Jesus, he starts giving away his money in a radical way. And it wasn't just this woman or Zacchaeus. This was actually something you could see in the life of the early church. Their generosity abounded. Now, many of you might will be familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5. That's the story where this couple wants to pretend or tries to fool the apostles into thinking they were more generous than they really were. And so they said, you know, we sold our property for this. We want to give the money to the church. But they were struck dead. Maybe that's why we remember that story. But there's a story that precedes that, that I think we often forget about. It's the way that Acts chapter 4 ends immediately before the Ananias and Sapphira story begins. Here's what it says as it describes the early church. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the reason I'm highlighting a number of them for you is just to help you see that these sorts of extravagant displays of worship were not unique or isolated incidents. And even as we think about our story and this anointing of Jesus, you might know that Jesus was anointed like this a second time as well by Mary 
the sister of Lazarus. And we find that account in John chapter 12. And there we're told that Jesus was again reclining at a table when Mary cracked open an expensive flask of perfume and anointed Jesus with it. And Judas objected and said, you know what, that that perfume could have been sold for up to a year's worth of wages and the money given to the poor. But Jesus commends her for what she did. Now, that story is found in John chapter 12, but you have to back up to John chapter 11 to understand why it was that Mary did what she did. John chapter 11 is the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so you can understand Mary, right? I mean, her brother has been rescued from death. And so she wants to take all that she has and pour it out in worship of Jesus. Extravagant forgiveness results in extravagant worship. We planted this church in 2011. We launched in September of that year. And when you start out as a church, you aren't always sure if you will survive, to be honest, if you will make it, if you'll survive financially. Now, we had some help from our denomination and conference But I remember getting a phone call in late December of that year from someone who I had never met personally. He knew who I was from my days at Willingdon, and he had heard about our church plan. He asked if I would drive in and meet him in Burnaby. And when I showed up, he handed me a check for $10,000. I mean, not not to me, but for Crossridge, right? And, And actually, he did this three years in a row. And when I asked him, you know, why are you doing this? I mean, what's your motivation for for wanting to help us? He told me that that when he was in university, God had saved him from some pretty dark stuff, and it was through the ministry of a church. And so as God blessed him in his business ventures, he committed himself to help fund new churches. The funny thing about that is, is that the first time it happened, I remember share, I was just excited about it, share that news with some friends, one of those friends being Norm Funk, who, who uh, many of you know, and he planted Westside Church, he's been here a couple times to preach, and when I told Norm that story, he said, you know what, I got that exact same phone call from that same guy, and he gave me the exact same check. The extravagant forgiveness, when you have experienced the grace of God, it overflows into expressions of generosity. So I don't share that story to tell you that you ought to write us a check for $10,000 today, but just really to underscore that point, extravagant forgiveness results in extravagant worship. We look for ways to express our gratitude. Now, can I just say a word? (laughs) Siri doesn't understand, but hopefully you do. Can I just say a word to you as a church? And that is just that I'm encouraged by the way so many of you do this. One of the things I love about our church, one of the things I boast about our church is the generosity of our people. I love the fact that when we bring something before you, you respond with generosity. So we've had two Compassion Sundays here as a church in the last couple years, and both times the number of kids that we've sponsored through that ministry has sort of shattered expectations, our expectations and compassions organizations. As a church, we now sponsor more than 130 kids around the world. I love that. 
I love that when we came last year at Christmas and said, here's our Christmas project. We're going to partner with an organization called 12,000 that works in Nepal to rescue young girls from sex trafficking. It was the first time we had partnered with them, and, and I thought, you know what, They're, the name of their ministry is the 12,000. Wouldn't it be great if we as a church raised $12,000 towards that ministry, and you responded with great generosity? We, we raised more than twice that. Not because of browbeating, but because so many of you recognize the grace of God that has been shown to you in Jesus, and you want to express your worship in a variety of tangible ways. Extravagant forgiveness results in extravagant worship. That's the heart behind generosity. The second truth, though, that we see in this passage, which is that only a forgiven sinner will love a forgiving Savior. So let's come back to our passage and let's look at the contrast that we find between this woman who showed up at the dinner and Simon who hosted the dinner. After the woman washes Jesus' feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, kisses his feet and anoints them with perfume, Simon says this in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then notice verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, just as an aside, notice that it says that Jesus answered Simon. I mean, Simon didn't say this out loud. He says that he said it to himself or he said it internally. But Jesus answers him because Jesus knows what's in the heart of a person. I told you that God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. And this little exchange demonstrates that Jesus had the woman's heart, but not Simon's. So Jesus then proceeds to tell a parable to Simon and ask him a question. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus' ability to do this amazes me. I mean, with just a few words and a short story, he's able to teach such profound truth. And the point of his story is not difficult to discern. We we all, I think, understand something about debt. I was looking at some statistics this week, and best I could tell, the average Canadian owes $23,800 in non-mortgage debt. That is, things like credit card debt. The average student who has taken a student loan owes about $18,000. Now, those numbers may not sound huge to you, but remember, those are the averages. It means that some people owe much more than that, and you can add mortgage debt on top of that. Now, I don't know what your personal debt level is like, but let's say tomorrow morning I showed up at your house, I knocked on your door, and when you answered, I said, good news. I am here to forgive all your debts. I'm going to pay all of the debts that you have outstanding. Now, your response to that 
would be different based on the level of debt that you carry. I mean, if you've got credit card debt and a car loan and 20 years left on your mortgage, I imagine you would be overjoyed, wouldn't you? But you know, if you've paid off your mortgage and you pay off your credit card balance every month, I mean, you might say, ah, thanks, Lee. I mean, here's the hydro bill, right? Kind of nonchalant about it. Your response will be commensurate with how much debt has been forgiven. Now, it doesn't happen much anymore because of our move away from cash, but maybe you can remember having an experience where, you know, you go into a store and you go to pay and you're just a little bit short. You know, like the bill is $5.16 and you just got $5 in your pocket. You left your wallet in the car and the clerk says, oh, you know what? Don't worry about it. I mean, we've maybe had that happen. Probably none of us then went around the rest of the day saying, you will never believe what happened to me. I mean, I didn't have to pay that 16 cents. Your response will be commensurate with the level of forgiveness you've experienced or the level of forgiveness you think you've experienced. Both of these debtors could not pay their debts. Now, Simon understands the parable well enough. He gives the right answer to Jesus' question. I suppose the one who will have more gratitude is the one who's been given or been forgiven the greater debt. But Jesus is about to show Simon that he doesn't understand how to respond to God's grace at all. Listen again to verses 44 to 46. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Great contrast between their responses to Jesus. Now, there's some debate as to whether it was expected for a host to wash his his guest's feet or not. So was Simon failing to show even common courtesy to Jesus? It's not actually clear if that was the expectation or not. What is clear is that that is the kind of treatment you would offer to an honored guest in your home. And Simon's actions or lack of actions toward Jesus reveal the greatest contrast between him and this woman. Now, there are many differences between them. I mean, Simon had a high social standing in the community. This woman was an outcast. Simon was the host of the dinner. She was an uninvited guest. Simon was angry and dismissive of Jesus. She was overcome with joy and worshipped him. The biggest difference between them has to do with how they viewed themselves in relation to God. And elsewhere, Jesus tells a parable that captures the contrast between Simon and this woman perfectly. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Simon thought of himself as righteous. He thought of the woman as a sinner. He thought of Jesus as a peer at best. But now that it seems like he can't even deduce the most obvious facts about this woman who's touching him, he thinks even less of him. Now, we need to know that Jesus' point here is not that some people are worse sinners than others, but that only those who understand the immensity of what they've been forgiven of will demonstrate a deep level of gratitude. So have you thought about what it is that we've been given in Christ lately? Have you thought about the forgiveness that was purchased for you? Have you thought about what you've been rescued from? If you're a Christian and you don't have gratitude, if you don't love much, it's probably because you do not understand the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. You haven't reflected sufficiently on it. You know, it was a fascinating story that made headlines back in 2014. On November 20th of that year, a disgruntled former student at Florida State University went on a shooting spree on the campus. He shot and wounded three students before being shot by police. There was a student by the name of Jason DeFress who was leaving the library when the gunman opened fire. And Jason managed to escape, made it home rattled, but unharmed. He was just grateful to be alive. About three hours later, he was going through his backpack, and to his great surprise, he found a bullet lodged in one of the books he had just checked out. That book saved his life. Can you imagine the level of gratitude and joy that you would have at that moment when you realize in a more focused way what you've been saved from? See, you and I ought to have a greater sense of gratitude because we've been spared from more than just a bullet in the back. We deserved the judgment of God, and instead we were given his grace. And the message of the gospel for every one of us is that we owed a debt we could never pay, but that Jesus paid that debt for us. Listen to the way Paul says it in the book of Colossians. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, the record of debt that stood against us was canceled. And not just canceled by sort of, you know, waving it away or just writing it off. The record of debt that stood against us was canceled because it was nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus. And when we come to understand, when we come to truly understand the forgiveness that has been given to us in Christ, our love for him increases. So verse 47 says this, Therefore I tell you, 
her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. And just as a point of theological clarification, I think it's important that we understand what Jesus is not saying here. It's God's forgiveness of our sins that leads to our love for him. Not our love for him that leads to our forgiveness. And I say that because some people read verse 47 that way. Roman Catholic theologians use verse 47 to argue that justification is not by faith alone, but by love combined with faith. But that interpretation goes against the entire sense of this passage. The point of the parable that Jesus tells, and actually the point of everything he says in this passage, is that her love is the proof of her forgiveness, not the cause of it. Christian Standard Bible renders verse 47 like this, and I think it captures the essence of what Jesus is saying. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And if we had any doubt that that was the point of the passage, we would just need to look at Jesus' clear statement to the woman in verse 50 where he says, your faith has saved you. So I would just say, as we think about this passage, Simon's stinginess and the woman's extravagance were merely reflections of what was in their heart. And this passage is ultimately about more than generosity. This passage helps us understand the nature of salvation and the proper response to it. I think one of the dangers of doing a series on the spiritual disciplines is that it's easy for people to come away with the wrong impression, right? It's too often spiritual disciplines are taught as though they are a a means to somehow earn God's favor. You know, if I just read my Bible more, if I just prayed more, if I fasted occasionally, if I gave more, then God would be pleased with me or more pleased with me. One thing we've been trying to do throughout this series is to root all of these spiritual disciplines in the gospel. All of these disciplines are responses to God's grace. So we don't practice generosity as a way to earn God's grace. We practice generosity because we've experienced his grace. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul engages in a lengthy discourse about Christian generosity. And here's what lies at the root of all that he says in those two chapters. And we'll close with this. Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, that's what is the grounds, the basis for our generosity. It's what Christ has done for us, that for our sakes... He who was rich has become poor, that we might become rich. So let's pray together and pray for that heart of generosity to well up inside of us. Father, we thank you for your great grace. That grace was shown to us in Jesus. And Lord, like the woman who comes and weeps at the forgiveness that she has experienced and the grace that she has seen in Jesus, God, would you move our hearts to do that same thing? And would we respond in in the ways that you prompt us, Lord? Would we respond with spontaneous expressions of gratitude? Would that overflow into a kind of worship that is tangible? We would be generous people. Lord, we pray these things and commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.